You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Writing a musical is a long process. And once the writers have finished that last page, well, that's really only the beginning of their journey. By the time an actor like me comes along to audition for it, there's usually been years of drafts, workshops, and revisions. Now, as a listener of this podcast, you know that this summer has been a welcome return to the stage for me in a new theatrical adaptation of Anne of Green Gables, my first musical since the whole COVID shutdown. And it all started with a self-tape audition back in February of this year that then culminated in several callbacks with the creative team a few weeks later. Well, today I'm joined by two of the people who were in that audition room. Hi, I'm Maddie O'Brien. I wrote the book and lyrics to Anna Green Gables, and I'm originally from upstate New York, just outside of Albany, New York, and I've lived in Williamsburg, Brooklyn for the last 15, 20 years. Hi, my name is Matt Vinson. I am originally from Mobile, Alabama. I live in New York City now, and I'm a composer. I write for musical theater, and uh, we're working together on Anna Green Gables. While I have spoken with individual writers and composers in previous episodes, this is my first time to speak with a musical writing team. Matt and Maddie have done several musicals together, but for this conversation, we focus on the many years it has taken for Anne of Green Gables to get to this point here at Goodspeed Musicals in Connecticut and how they are preparing for its potential future. Throughout the episode, you'll also be hearing samples of music from Anne of Green Gables, as Matt and Maddie share three stories of its humble beginnings, learning to take and not take feedback from others, and how actors influence the rewriting and editing process. They even talk about a time when collaboration with producers took a turn for the worst. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The show grew into something that I didn't even recognize by the time it was going up in the second production of it. And I was so disappointed by that. And it was heartbreaking. And that's why I left New York and went back to my to get a master's because I was I just didn't I couldn't face creating anymore, really. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of Why I'll Never Make It an award-winning Top 25 Theatre podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, an actor and singer, talking with fellow creatives each episode of personal struggles and professional hardships with lessons we can all learn from. The website is whyillnevermakeit.com, where you can subscribe to bonus episodes and offer your own financial support to the production of this podcast. Again, that's whyillnevermakeit.com. Welcome, Matt and Maddie. It is so great to have both of you here. Thanks, Patrick. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you so much. We've been working together for a few weeks now, but we first actually met in the auditions, which were a few months ago. And I imagine that, you know, you're isolated, you're writing, you're together, but then you kind of start to bring this out and the auditions are really your first chance to see it on people. And so what is that process like when you first start hearing this music in the voices of other people? Absolutely. And I think that that's really a, that's a very important part of the process for the music. I think it's being able to, to not only hear the range of the performer, but also being able to start to hear the um, sort of the, the emotional phrasing and, and how the, it sort of tries on for size with the various performers. And so I think that basically, you know, just hearing the song gives me a sense of how I can imagine it on stage. Yeah. And I think there's also the element of the characters live in your head for so long. 
And then all of a sudden, I feel like every each time someone comes into the room, I remember a mentor of mine saying, you'll see the character, you'll feel the character walk into the room. And and I was, so don't panic and you'll know. And and there is something about that. It's not that it's always perfect and not that everyone, we, we're not always even on the same page with every actor that comes in, but you do kind of start to recognize the characters coming into the room and you're like, oh yeah, I can see him or I can see her stepping into this. And then getting to play with them on it is really, really cool. The first story that you wanted to talk about goes with the beginning and how the two of you came to this classic story of Anne of Green Gables and the journey of bringing it to the stage. And from what I understand, it really began with one song, right? Yeah. So I, we were looking for something, uh, uh, something we could adapt. And I had grown up on the, with the Anne of Green Gables stories. My mother, she was a huge fan of them. And we had been looking at a ton of different material, reading just a ton of stuff. And I thought, oh, Anne's so imaginative and she's so you know, I think she could work on stage, but it had been tried on stage in different plays and musicals before, but none that had been on Broadway or, you know, and so we thought it was fair ground to go to try for it. And I wrote a lyric that's still in the show called Oh My Diana. And it really is pretty much what you hear in the show right now is was pretty much the original lyric. And I sent it to Matt and and I think we got in the room to, or did you write it without? Actually, we wrote in the room. It was right before you were about to go off to grad school yeah. uh, for a couple of years. And so we were just tying things up and we, you had the lyric and we said, well, let's just write one more before you go. We don't know what we do. Oh, my Diana. This much I know is true. I never meant to ruin you. So in that interim period, was it still in there or was it just kind of a one-off and, and you put it aside? Yeah, well, you know what's really funny that I was thinking of the other day? I So I went to grad school at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow, and I did a lot of my master's work at the Globe and the Royal Shakespeare Company. And it's really funny that I didn't really attribute, there's a ton of Shakespeare in the show. There's a ton of references to Shakespeare and stuff in the show, and uh, which are not necessarily in the Ella Montgomery writing. That's kind of been imposed on, uh, on the piece a bit. And I was thinking that's really funny. And I did write a little bit more. I was like, oh, this could kind of work for Anne. And this could, and I was just playing over there, not even really, I think, sending a ton to Matt. And then when I came back, I had a bunch of material and I was like, okay, let's play with this. And for other shows too, but this one started, started to step forward. Well, I'll say that with that song, Oh My Diana, there was a period where we, we just, because you were away, we said, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to, you know, write together. You know, we weren't sure what the next step would be, but that melody had haunted me through that time. I just, and I, it just wouldn't go away. And so I think having that, having written that song, I just knew that there was something more there. And so just being able to um, then come back to it. We definitely met back up when we came back to the city. And then I think it just was like, oh, let's try another thing. Let's try another thing. And, and one thing led to another. Was it an easy fit? Was it like just an instant kind of spark chemistry between the two of you? Or did it take a little while for you to come together? <laughs> I'll field this one. No, it was awful. Um, we're incredibly different people, um, have very, very different processes and what we need and what we what sets us off and what we expect and how we operate. And, um, we probably could have written seven or eight <laughs> musicals by now, and um, but we spent so much time fighting with each other that uh, I mean, my artistic poor, fights, artistic right? fights, yeah. and yeah, but but my oh yeah, we had uh, my poor roommates. Uh, the, the, all the uh, it would be awful. They could write awful books about the, the the meltdowns in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Well, I think that we something that is good about what we do today is we're really good editors. I think that we value that sort of process of of keeping on refining things after we hear them on the actors or you know or just have some time with it ourselves, But in the, in the beginning, that editing process, I used to, you know, I think Matt used to say, Matt, I feel like you played the right melody the first time. And then I would try out 10 other ones that were horrible before I felt comfortable to say, okay, the, the first one was the right one. And so I think we're, we've both continued to edit well, but I think we're better at identifying the first one when we feel it's right. Yeah. And I also think that we, the fighting was able to kind of meld our processes better and 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 i know preemptively now what i can go to matt about what i shouldn't go to matt about when i should approach something and vice versa and i think we we made a pact several years ago about 
I'm going to be looking out for him in a process and he'll be looking out for me and we know what we need in those things. And so when other people come in and we start to work, we're very protective of like, you shouldn't involve Matt in this at this moment or vice versa. And, you know, and, that, and that's really, really, really where everything changed for us. And so it seems like you both found a way to stay in your own lane, but still on the same road. Totally. Yeah. I mean, part of my, I like to have all of the variables and have all the information and, and like, you know, all the different choices sort of presented to me. And then I sort of try them on sort of within my own sort of head. I think Maddie works a different way. I want to know nothing. I don't want any opinions. I don't want to think about it. I want to like, I want to follow my gut. But we've, we've gotten to a good place, I think, navigating what he needs and what I need. And the one problem that we have right now, actually, it, not problem, but we tend to write really quickly and throw things out very quickly and are not afraid to be like, that's not working, cut it, that we can put something else in there. I think for a while when we were younger, it felt like, oh, if we cut this, it's like a finite resource or something. And now it feels much more like we know we can go into that room and write something else, something better and more precise or, or worse, but something new something and try something else. And it's not quite as scary to ditch it. So when it comes to coming together for Anne of Green Gables, now this is a, as you said, it's a beloved story. It's been around more than 100 years now. And so was there a sense of responsibility in approaching this kind of story for a musical treatment? Yeah. And actually the hardest part, yes, there was, you know, it's, it's classic and you want to honor that. And we knew in any adaptation that we did of someone else's work, being writers, you, you have a certain respect for, you don't want to mess up someone else's thing. You want to treat it with care. And there was that aspect, but I actually think what was the hardest aspect of the Anna Green Gables starting point was I felt like I could see how Matt and I could do it. And I didn't see it being um, Oklahoma. I didn't see it being like this, you know, um, pastoral thing for, right from the very beginning. And the real struggle and um, challenge was to, even with Matt and I getting on the same page about what, where we were aiming for, where was the sweet spot that we could bring something new to it, was defining that tone, that attack, the style of the piece, and then translating that to every collaborator and producer and artistic director and stuff that we've had to have meetings with all this time to say like, oh no, it's, it's sort of this and not that. And, and only recently have we really been able to have, I think, a, a great team together that understands where we're heading and aiming, you know, stylistically. Don't you agree? Yeah, I agree. I think that, that with Anne in particular, the character of Anne has the depth of emotion and it also is just has the comedy. And my experiences of, of being in the room with Maddie is that Maddie is very entertaining. And the comedy stuff, I mean, it's just in terms of, you know, I laugh at things that you say and, and lyrics you write. And so I knew that that part would be there. And I also know that we can write things that have that depth of emotion. And so I felt that it was the right match for Anne in particular. Was there a sense of, as you said, you were trying to explain it? Because if I was explaining it, I could draw from many different musicals, you know, a Spring Awakening here, a little Bridges of Madison County that, you know, I would have these references, but obviously you were creating something new. So did you draw from other resources like that? What was that process? It's funny. It, we obviously are, you know, even the musicals you mentioned are some favorites. Yeah, we have all that context in the sense of musical theater, but it's really funny. I think that when we start to work on a piece, we tend not to start with a musical language that's based in theater. It tends to be Brandy Carlisle, the Indigo Girls, not in not even speaking specific to this piece, but in the past has been the artist Mika was a big influence at certain points and things that we pulled from kind of started the conversation about the aesthetic that we were going for and um, in, in the harmonies and in the way that the characters sounded and spoke and knowing that we both come from the musical theater already and that's sort of just uh, a huge influence on us anyway, that just is always going to be seeping in there and kind of filling in the cracks. And we have, I mean, we have an eclectic sensibility. Part of the aesthetic that we started even before Anne was sort of this collage idea of bringing together all these various shards of glass, you know, musical glass in some way. There's so much in Anne that is personal to me. I mean, I, I grew up in the South, you know, I'm a gay man. I grew up in the church. So like a lot of church music that I, there's, there's, a, there's a history there that's personal to me. So that comes in in certain moments. Other moments, there's this, you know, this effervescent quality to it that I've experienced 
give me joy. And so, it, so that's just sort of how I sort of think about it from a from an emotional place, and that I think seeps into the music. Now, Maddie, you have written plays, just straight plays by yourself. What made you want to make this a musical rather than turn Anne into another play? It's had adaptations that have been in definitely series, television series and things that have been done that were that have been very successful over the years. Uh, I haven't seen all of them, but I know that they have some of them have even cult followings. And I thought that the only angle to take with it new and fresh that we could bring to it was something that that hadn't been achieved on on a, on a mass scale. And I thought, OK, it hasn't had this really huge musical, commercial, Broadway thing going on. And I thought we had an angle of how to go down that avenue. And that, that's so that's where, where I looked to it. And also the plays that I've written, everything, I, I'm not crazy about adapting things so much in a, a play world. They've all been original pieces that have been inspired by different political topics or things like that, but not so much uh, adapting another piece. So you'd mentioned other adaptations, and one of the most famous is the TV movie series from the 1980s, uh, produced by Kevin Sullivan, starring Megan Follows. And I'm curious if you're both familiar with that, and did that influence where you went with this or how you composed this particular adaptation? You know, we're, I know that it exists. I've never seen it. And I know it has a, a huge following, and I actually cannot wait to someday sit down and watch it all because um, uh, I've only heard the most amazing things and I know Colleen Dewhurst is in it, which I just adore. But one of the things that when we started adapting it, the first reading we ever did of it was four hours long because I wanted to make sure we were really working out of the source material. So I wrote no book to it. And we just essentially 90%, at least 95% of the dialogue that I used were just directly mined from the Green Gables book to make sure we were really grounded in that so that it wasn't pulling from any other adaptation or anything. And then slowly I've like punched it up and removed things and edited. But, uh, so that's really where it stays grounded. Eventually, I would love to, when we have our version up and out there and stuff, I would love to see all of them, but not until that's done. Well, and a lot of the original text is very flowery in, in, in a way and very verbose. And I think that that first reading was was very long because of that. But now you've put some zingers in there, I think. And so like, there's a little Matty O'Brien sort of sitcom punch to it. Yeah, I think it's good. I think the thing that it needs to feel fresh to a modern audience I think some of the romantic language and sugarier stuff needs to be balanced with a little acid. And, um, and I think it's about just bringing that out of the, and it's there, it's actually there in the writing in a lot of places, but you've just got to choose wisely what scenes you're doing and what things and then punch them up a bit. They say you never wear a dress. They say your hair's always a mess. They say you're trash, more or less. Well, getting to the the second story that you wanted to talk about is the fact that you had to bring on producers, collaborators onto the project. Obviously, it wasn't just the Matt and Maddie show anymore. Now you had to bring other people on and specifically working around their own preconceived notions of this original work. What were some of the pushback or disagreements, differences you had in those opinions? Well, several times throughout the long process that it's been, we have introduced the idea and the title Anna Green Gables and people will, I think, gravitate towards thinking, oh, that's wonderful. Our audience will really love that. There's like this, uh, you know, little house on the prairie kind of aesthetic that I think comes to mind. We've even seen that reflected back on some initial like visuals and posters that have been mocked up, you know, for various productions. And I think that right away, we, we knew that we had a different vision in mind for the aesthetic, the branding, because it is so important that it, it's a contemporary classic. And so right away, the first thing you see and first thing you hear should reflect that. I totally agree. And it's been a learning curve for us and for the people that we've worked with on the project. Luckily, we had Justin Nichols, who we had collaborated with before as a producer um, on, on a different piece. And so we were able to sort of figure out with him how to point people in the right direction, that the right vision that we were going toward. And then, you know, we've had Eric Cornell and Jack Sennett and uh, these other producers join in who have been wonderful at also, they kind of got it and saw what it, the potential there. And they've helped translate it to, you know, when we came out to Goodspeed, we had meetings with them and Donna Lynn saw it when it was at the Finger Lakes. And it's, it's just been a process of sort of getting a united vision and also being open to how that vision is reinterpreted for specific audiences and to speak 
to people so that they feel like, oh, this show is for me. And that's a whole process into itself. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, as an actor, I certainly understand the role of the director, the choreographer, music director. I certainly know their input and how they can steer things. And producers on their end, they're, they're certainly known for their money, but how do they interact creatively with a piece and specifically with the producers that you mentioned? How have they interacted, not just on a financial business end, but then creatively? Well, Justin Nichols, who one of the lead producers, he believed in us for the, the project that we had before Ann. Um, I think he was in college still and when he, he first saw a reading up, up there and started listening to a bootleg recording and called us, hey, I just like your stuff. And, and, um, so we just have always embraced that friendship and collaboration through the years. Um, but he, he really understands what we're aiming for. And he is often our first sounding board whenever we're making a change or a new song. Um, he's also able to come to us in certain moments and say, Hey, I think you need to listen to this feedback. You need to maybe think about cutting this moment or that moment. And so it's, we really value having somebody we trust. And, you know, and, and as the team is growing, we're, we're, we're you know, broadening that circle of trust as well. Even this week, we met with Eric Cornell, who is one of the other producers who's early on to the project and his partner, Jack, and they had feedback. And I know that the nice thing about this team, right up to Donalyn and the producers here at Goodspeed, they've been really good about not overwhelming us because the real I think the problem with writing for me like I said before you know I don't it's hard for me if I have too many voices coming at me and too many opinions coming at me for me to receive information and receive the show on my own terms and say this is what I think needs to change or that's like follow my instincts if I have too many echoes in the back of my head of a note that I got here and this one get they've been really good at sort of coming together giving very concise specific feedback and then letting us go away and kind of process that and figure out how to address what things that we just know the show so well that sometimes you have blind spots where you're like, oh, that's a ghost from a previous adaptation. You know, but that was from another reading and that's not there anymore. And that needs to be removed to make it clearer here to connect these dots. And having eyes like that can be a real benefit if it's done in the right way. And luckily right now with these producers, they've been so great at facilitating that process for us. Well, and what's so interesting is that it's the two of you and then you start adding these other people. And eventually the two of you become a minority when it comes to the voices in the room. How do you stand up for yourself? Speak louder now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, it's funny. Yeah, there's now it's really weird. We, you kind of hand your baby over to all these people, whether that's producers and directors and choreographers. And you really have to trust the people that you're collaborating with and you have to trust the feedback loop. They're interpretive artists. You know, we're generative artists. We, we generate this material, but we have to have people interpreting it right down to actors and stuff. And sometimes you have a preconceived notion. That line, they're not saying that line right or that dance move is not right or whatever it is. You know, all, we all have those preconceived notions when we're creating something. But oftentimes, if you trust the team and you trust the people that you're working with and you trust their process and how they work, you'll find that they can scratch the itches that you're looking to have, the things that you wanted to address in the the original ideas, and also elevate them in a way that you hadn't anticipated it going into this place or that place or that moment landed. My favorite thing ever, I always say, is when an actor gets a laugh or tears out of something that I just had not, that was totally surprising to me. And it happens a lot. And those are the best moments, not when they execute the moment right. that I know is going to get the laugh. Well, I mean, we, we want to make sure that there are no mysteries. I mean, there's certain just technical things that we conceived when we initially were in the room together. Some of those writing sessions were 10 years ago. And so we just want to make sure that there's not ever a moment in the room where there's a mystery to be solved because we're there to support the process as well. We're, you know, as opposed to, you know, a piece where the writers are not part of the process or it's, it's someone who's no longer around. And it's a two-way street because I think that that's, again, we, we respond well on the spot, hearing it reflected back for the performers and, and make edits on that basis as well. So it's just, we really value being in the room for that feedback loop. 
with Anne of Green Gables, was there a moment where someone, whether the producers, director, came to you and said, okay, this isn't working or this has to change, and you didn't agree with them, but you changed it anyway and may have come around and like, oh, I guess that was better. I had an experience early on when I was in, I came out of college and one of the first shows I wrote was, uh, uh, I'm not even going to mention the show, but it was, it was, it was a show that it got a lot of heat really quickly and blew up in this big way. And, uh, there were a lot of wonderful producers attached to it. And there were a lot of, um, more challenging producers attached to it. And it became an unproductive feedback loop. And there were changes going in that I wasn't aware of, or that wasn't wasn't in control of. And the show grew into something that I didn't even recognize by the time it was going up in the second production of it. And I was so disappointed by that. And it was heartbreaking. And that's why I left New York and went back to my to get a master's because I was I just didn't I couldn't face creating anymore, really. And so in this process, I think it's been a process of setting boundaries and, and articulating needs. And everyone that's been attached to this produ- production on the producing end and the creative end is aware of that. Um, Jen always says PTSD from that production. And I will acknowledge that I've heard something. I've, I've heard that note and I am and I appreciate the note. I really genuinely, even if I don't agree with it yet, I do appreciate getting it. And then I need to process it. And sometimes we had a meeting with Eric uh, the other night and he gave a couple notes that I, I was like, oh, yes, of course, that's absolutely should be in there. And it just, they were great, brilliant, really smart notes. And there are other things that I was like, I need to think about that note. It might be the right note. I just need time to come to it and figure out where, where it's coming from and how it needs to be incorporated and what's the best, most artistic way it needs to be incorporated. Or if it needs to be, that note needs to be addressed in another way through direction or choreography or whatever it might be and for the music i mean i there's a there's a humility that i that i try to bring to the process but it takes some time meaning we have a a whole music department who is thinking about all the different technical elements the tempos the cues all these things that, that, that go into making everything work well and it takes me some time sometimes. I mean, I, I kind of joke. I say, well, now, you know, after we've had four weeks of rehearsal now, I'm, I'm saying, okay, you know, you were right four weeks ago. And so acknowledging that's important, but also just as part of my process, I just, I, need, I think initially hearing things as you've conceived them, but then also having that humility to be able to take a step back, hear it reflected back and then, and then say, you know what, actually you were right. And then, you know, we, we make the show better. And I think I can say this now, we're still in previews. Things are changing. So far, one major musical number that was cut what was the process of taking out a musical number that we had rehearsed, that we had choreographed, that was in it, and then we decide to, okay, let's cut it. Was it, was it time? Was it storytelling? Many things? You know, it, it's a number called The Asylum that was one of the first numbers we wrote, or very early on numbers that we wrote. It was sort of more of a proof of concept number when we started writing it. Um, we were trying to figure out how Anne's imagination worked and how she, the ensemble worked with her and stuff. And I've always really loved the number and I love what the way that it's staged with Jen Jankashe, our choreographer, and um, Jen Thompson, her director. And the cast was executing it beautifully, almost too beautifully because it, it made me uh, a little shaky about cutting it. But when we did it at the Finger Lakes, the first production we ever did of this, it was the one thing that I didn't cut from the Finger Lakes that I sort of had, I had said to Matt, I think we're staying a little too long with Anne in this kind of not only manic energy, but she's got a very like high energy at the top of the show. And I felt like the asylum after she, she sings this big song waiting, that's very high energy. And then she goes right into the asylum. And I felt like it was staying in one type of energy too long, but we liked the number so much. And we liked what Jen Jankashe did with it so much. And Jen Thompson did with it so much that we wanted to keep it. And then as soon as we did the first run through of that section, I turned to the producers and I was like, my gut was right. And unfortunately, that work and everything has to, you know, has to go, but it's all in service of the show, even though I still adore that number. The asylum walls were overflowing. Boys and girls are plenty. Every bed slept 10 or 20 of us. And every slice of bread that they provide. We knew we'd be required to divide. Among the 13,000 orphans trapped inside. I remember it was, I think, October of 2014. I think we did our first session with Jen Jankishay. And I remember being in the rehearsal room and with her company, The Bring About. 
And we were reading through, I think, two or three songs and uh, sight reading. First time, actually, I think we were, Maddie and I had said, you know, we're not sure if we're going to do this Anna Fring Abel's thing. It was, it was like sort of like the last hope of it. And then in that, in that session, you know, things were going okay. But then we sang The Asylum and I was at the piano and Jen Cache was on the other side of the room. I remember looking over at her face when she, the first time she heard the vocals come on that bridge, you know, there were dragons in the, in the cellar. And I saw the spark and, and things in, in her eyes lit up. And I sensed that that was the moment when she thought, okay, I can do this, this piece. And in some ways that session actually saved Maddie and my writing partnership. And so there was like a personal connection I had to the song itself. So it's, I think probably why we've held on to it for so long, but being able to, you know, just at least again, take a step back, receive what we're seeing in the show in the moment, it was the right decision for the show, but just, it was, you know, a, a tough one. Still painful. What is it that keeps you going for so many years on one project that, that, that you don't get tired of it or that you, you're like, is this ever going to be something? Like, how, how do you keep going through that? It's kind of crazy. I, um, I was talking to, to Justin Nichols, I think a couple of weeks ago about this. I mean, it, you know, it becomes your, it's not your full-time job because you have to have a job to, you know, pay the rent and all that stuff. But there's not a day that goes by that you don't, that you're not thinking in some ways about some moment on this show. And it's not the most efficient process because you're thinking about just kind of, okay, let me double check that. How's that moment feeling for me today? And, and that's over the course of years. But I do think that there's a cumulative muscle memory you build through that. So now when we're with this production, I think we're able to make decisions even more quickly because we have that shared experience and that repetitions of any particular task or skill a certain number of times, you can become an expert. I think it applies here. It's not about us being necessarily experts at being writers or composers. But I think we're definitely experts on Anne of Green Gables, a new musical, because that's been our life for the last decade or so. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. And certainly one of the things that have come up, debates that have happened over the decades is the idea, and, and most notably by this professor from the Royal Military College in Kingston, Ontario, Lara Robinson. And she brought up the idea, this underlying center, and, and it's been talked about even before her, but she centered it around this underlying current of lesbianism that's within the story. And was that a thought? Was that a voice? Was that one of the things you wanted to address in your particular production? Yeah, I, I read that very early on when we were starting to write it, and I thought it was super interesting. As soon as I read it, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's why I gravitated toward these books, even as even before I was in my own sexual maturity or whatever. I mean, I was really little when I was reading these books, but I do think that I was, you know, unpopular and I was dorky and I was bookish and I was hot tempered and imaginative and overly opinionated, all those things. And so Anne really just as like a character I really related to, but then I do think that there's this interesting thing that Ella Montgomery does uh, with love in the story. You know, most classic novels like that have this really heteronormative love story at the center of them. And for certain, Gilbert and Anne, the two leads of the show, over the course of her entire set of books, you know, they get married and there's a, no spoiler alerts. But there's also these really intimate friendships and or very romantic kind of friendships between the women in the books. In our show, it's Anne and Diana. And I was really like intrigued by the, those love stories. She doesn't kind of put one form of love above another in the stories. It's not like romantic love wins and friendship love is not as good. And like, and that's what we've always kind of said as we were writing this. I don't know what Ellen Montgomery intended or not. And, and I actually think that the case for the lesbianism in not only this work, but in her own life is really, really intriguing and interesting. I don't think we'll probably ever get a real answer to it. But the thing that was more fascinating to me was how we could honor both interpretations of that. I see what I see in the show and what I think um, we have, you know, put our thumb on that scale uh, of how we interpret the show. But I think 
we didn't want to say that if you view them as platonic friendship, a deep platonic friendship between Anne and Diana, that that was invalid. Or if you viewed it as that there was more of a romance there that was unrequited love or whatever that was, that that was invalid. We wanted to say that like either of those interpretations are right, depending on how you come to it. Because in the books, she doesn't place those loves, those two types of love, whatever love that was between those two people, Ella Montgomery doesn't put that one above another. It's not better if they were romantic or better if they were friends. I actually think the greatest love story in the show is between Matthew and Marilla, who are brother and sister. That's a clearly platonic relationship, but they are the definition of kindred spirits. So we wanted to allow there to be enough gray that people could resonate the way that the books have. And I think that's actually probably why, unknowingly, the books have lasted and had such a profound effect all these years later. And, and to me, it's it's so interesting how different perspectives, how many of those there are, you know, related to the story. And um, one of the times that I went up to Prince Edward Island, and um, and actually I, I stayed in, a, in an Airbnb in Cavendish, and the, my host, she was actually a, from a family who lived there, you know, for the generations. I think her mother had sewed Ellen Montgomery's wedding gown, so she was telling me all of these sort of the, the sewing machine was in the room, and so that all these sort of stories about it. She actually dro- drove me around that around the island and gave me a real sort of locals tour. And as she was doing that, she was telling me all these stories about oh, you know, Maud. I think she went by. You know, she always had so many boyfriends, and so so just just hearing all these stories that were just had been told and told and told. You know, and then you read her letters, you get a different, very different impression. And you could, you know, it's an un, it's sort of an unanswerable question, and I think that that is what makes things exciting in literature. And I love living in the gray. And and that's, I think, what we're trying to do with Anne as much as we can. Well, it's interesting that that has been uh, something that has come up not just in literature, in theater, but in society in general, where we're seeing historical figures, pieces, works, and now applying a very contemporary lens to it. And there's something to be said for you know, even though it was written 100, 200 years ago, we're going to see it, read it how how we are now. You know, we can't live back then. They can't live here. But I think it's interesting you talk about this gray area so that you're opening it up to either interpretation, whether someone wants to have a traditional approach to it or a very, like, modernistic, open-ended kind of approach to it. Is that so that there is no question answered, per se? I really think what we're doing is honoring the books as they are. I mean, I think that really you can read those books if you go back and read them right now. And there's nothing there that isn't coming directly from those books. A lot of the quotes that would be the most LGBTQIA, you know, uh, driven are actually lifted directly from the books in uh, verbatim. And obviously I've had a hand in choosing what is in there and what isn't in there. And I could have chose different quotes and things. So I actually would say that all we've really done is sort of honored what Ella Montgomery put there. And, and I don't have, they're not my original characters. They're not, it's not, I don't know what she really, what was really behind those questions. But I do think what resonates with me is that I think in society, we, especially nowadays, if you're not romantically coupled or if you're single, there's a, there's sort of a stigma still crazily to that kind of thing. And what I love about this is, and the original works is that they deal with that stigma. Marilla deals with that stigma. Matthew deals with that stigma. But when you see the full story of the books, I think what Ella Montgomery is ultimately saying is that you can have this community and in, in home is built by everything and everyone around you. And it's not if, if Gilbert and Anne don't end up together or if Anne and Diana don't end up together or whatever the, your interpretation is, that's all right because you can build a community of love in a very full life in spite of having a romantic partner and not having a romantic partner. And that to me is really what I think we tried to honor in the books and let people take what they will from there. There's so many thoughts and theories I could show you But the greatest quest or query Well, that gets us to the third story that you wanted to bring up, and this deals with more of the process of tailoring the the dialogue, the music, fitting the pieces onto the various performers that you've worked with throughout this writing process. And do you ever find yourself looking for actors who fit the story like that? 
or actors that come in and they kind of expand it in a new way, and that's who you go with instead. Is there a criteria that you have when when picking that actor? Maddie, you can speak to the the audition process more, but the thing for us is we have years on this project before we ever had the opportunity for uh, for productions, and so some of the, the actually Michelle Vitamilia, uh, and who's our Diana, um, is the only person who's ever played Diana, and we've worked with her in workshops and practice rooms. You know, she was part of that four hour, oh, yeah, that, that put, and she stuck yeah. with it, which is astounding. Um, but she, uh, yeah, she did the very first four hour reading. I actually saw her in this concert at Ars Nova. I, as I recall it, it was sort of like electronic looping music and very not our Anna Green Gables, though very enjoyable, but but just not what we were doing. And I sat there and I was like, I really think that that girl could be Diana Barry. Like, I just had this weird, like, thought that like, and she really wasn't doing anything that you would think would be like Diana Barry for us. And so I like, I stalked her online. I really did. I, I went and she had just YouTube like graduated. Videos. Yeah, she had like graduated Carnegie Mellon. And I got, I, I can't even remember how I did it, but I found her contact information and I just begged her to do the first reading. And as soon as we started working with her, it was no questions asked. That's who it was. And luckily she stuck with us this entire time. But there is something too. We've also had other people attach people that we've written in mind for. We, you know, we had ideas for Marilla and, uh, you know, you, I always kind of write with actors in mind, even if they're never going to do the part. Um, it just helps me kind of isolate the tone of the voice and the things in my head. And sometimes we get lucky and sometimes they do it. And then sometimes they book other projects and they can't do it anymore. And, you know, it all, it all rotates. But I think that each actor leads you to the next correct choice. And I believe, you know, when they say that, you know, if it's your story to tell, you'll tell it. If it's your, whether it's the actor or whether it's us. And sometimes they they book the right thing and they leave us and they go and do something else that's wonderful. And we need to believe in that. And then we just need to open our eyes and say, okay, what did we learn from them? What was wonderful about what they brought to the role? What are we going to miss? What are we going to cry about? What are we going to be panicked about that we don't have them anymore? And who's coming in that can scratch that itch, but also what do they bring a new angle on? And one, one of the people that we had, um, a perfect example is Marilla. Um, we had an actress, Nancy Anderson, who I've worked with a ton, play Marilla um, brilliantly in um, uh, in a couple readings. And, and, and she actually, in our first reading, she she played Rachel Lynn. Oh yeah, she played Rachel Lynn originally. And then we, uh, we, and she took, then I had her uh, start doing Marilla with it. And she was brilliant Rachel Lynn too. But but we started doing Marilla with her and then she did it at the Finger Lakes with us. She booked 1776 and she was like completely devastated and she'd been with the project for so long, but it just was a direct conflict. But we got to go back into the audition room and Shay Cat, Sharon, Catherine Brown walked in and they actually do have similar, very similar things about them in some way. I couldn't put my finger on like the energy or quality that they do in the role that is similar. And then Sharon also brings this whole other like thing that Nancy, you know, it, it, it's just a different aesthetic that um that's so uniquely Sharon. And it's exciting. You know, you've got to kind of embrace that and say, okay, now, now work with Sharon and how, and we, we tailored it to Nancy and we hope we, you know, we'll tailor it to, we'll tailor it to Sharon's strengths. And, uh, and that's how you work away with the character. And certainly one of the things that have, that you've brought to this casting process is the original stories. It, it was an all white community. Now you're bringing in people of color to, to fill in various roles like Shea Cat. How does that impact the story in a way that Ellen Montgomery didn't have in mind? Well, the first thing I'd start with is actually, you know, it, it's such a beloved story for Canadians. And so we're to Americans writing, you know, the story. And so right there, I mean, this, there's universal, without a doubt, a universal appeal to the story and the themes uh, around the world. And I think, so starting right there, this is a story for for everyone. And so there shouldn't, I think, be any limitations in terms of, what those people, you know, need to, to look like. Yeah. And Avonlea, though it was on Prince Edward Island and there's the, just the truth of the, the makeup of Prince Edward Island, Avonlea is a fictional town, so we can make it whatever we want. And, uh, really, honestly, I said, I, when we started this rehearsal process, this is the first show I've ever cast where I've gotten every single first choice actor that I wanted in, in the room with us. And usually that just, it's, you know, someone gets double booked and we can't get this person we get this person and it's all oh all shakes out however but it was really cool that i i didn't even realize it at the time but as they were the confirmations were coming in i was like this was literally every single person was the first choice that i had for this role and i think we definitely 
wanted to make sure that it was a diverse cast and that it was that it was resonant with as many people as possible. But also, we just got lucky that the peop- the combination that came into the room of people and backgrounds and ethnicities and you know where even where they're from or and their identities, sexual identities and stuff, it really organically started to fit together in this really beautiful way, which was just an exciting process. And so, with that diverse cast, how have you? been able to tailor the, the the musical writing as well as the the dialogue writing to to fit the various colors or do you just try to have a wide palette and then let the actors fill it in i do think that a lot most of that comes from the actors we have um a song make a move that has been sung by different actors through the years and i think everyone brings their own sort of vocal styling to it i mean as writers i think we write a map that then the actors can and we're really responsive to hey can we take this melody up so it has a you know a more soulful resonance for me in in a particular moment or the comedic timing can be better tailored so i think that that's something we're always looking at no matter who the cast is make a move make a mess make a mistake And if it breaks your heart, then let it break. You're always sort of tailoring the the suit to the person, and I and I'm always shocked when people don't do that because I just think to myself like we have the ability to change things. Like we're not dead, you know, we're not we're not dead writers. So like why wouldn't we fit it to each person? And actually, in those instances, it's usually just Matt myself and the performer at the piano and we have you know what we've written and then it's just a matter of a real conversation a push pull and 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 they'll say my voice sits here better or this is this sound is better for me and and we just try and slowly inch it toward you know what really plays into every strength that they have and if you do that it makes us look better <laughs> i mean like you know if, if they're nailing the song each night and it really feels organic from them then everyone's like oh you're such brilliant writers but it's actually their performance elevating it now throughout the rehearsal process and now even in preview performances which we're currently in you're continuing to tweak rewrite edit this musical now when does that process end for you when do you know you're finally done with this particular <laughs> musical piece or dialogue Friday, Friday at noon, at noon. <laughs> uh, and we're so excited yes uh, we can't for wait this <laughs> for this production Friday at noon and then you will see Matt and I disappear for at least several days of you know relaxation and not thinking about Anne of Green Gables at all uh yeah I mean it, the hardest part is the in-between like right now we the nice thing is with I the nice thing about it is it's up and running and you have a cast doing it. And so it's, there's a lot less questions in that. You can just see some, the audience is getting that line. They're getting that. That's getting laugh. It's not. It, we're staying too long in this. There's, it's a little less ephemeral in your edits because you're just like, this is too, we're too long here. We're too, it's going too fast, whatever. And um, so that's really nice in the process. The thing that's really unfortunate in that process is that you also have a cast performing, you know, eight shows a week and going to rehearsals and you you have to be, you have to understand like how much, these changes affect that and and also affect the show for a couple of days. Like, you know, when we put in we, when we put in a change, the cast needs to catch up. You know, they need a couple of days to just like make that feel organic and connect the dots again. And, and so you have to be sort of judicious in that process. I think we really made an effort to allow, especially in the, these times of COVID and stuff, we were trying not to change that much during the first few weeks of uh, rehearsals so that Jen and everyone, we didn't want to be tinkering too much as they were putting it all up on its feet initially, which means that right now we've had to do some more tinkering. Luckily, the show's in great shape. And I think changes that we're putting in this week are doable and and friendly and to both the cast and to the show and to us. So that's a nice feeling too. You know, being in the show, I certainly I certainly know firsthand what it's like to, to work on the show, but I'm so glad to get to talk to you individually and together as far as this process. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having thank us. You. It was a blast. To learn more about Anne of Green Gables, its run at good speed, the concept album recording, as well as Matt and Maddie themselves, you'll find links to that and much more in the show notes. You'll also see a list of the voices that you've heard throughout this episode, singing the beautiful music that these two talented artists have written. Thank you so much for joining me, along with Matt and Maddie, for this inside look at musical writing. 
please help support the continued production of Win Me by going to whyillnevermakeit.com and click subscribe. You'll get access to plenty of bonus episodes and interviews, as well as my sincere appreciation for helping make this podcast possible. Well, that does it for me, Patrick Oliver-Jones, in charge of writing, editing, and producing this podcast. Why I'll Never Make It is a WinMe Media production and is part of the Helium Radio Network and a member of the Broadway Makers Alliance. The current Anne Shirley playing here at Goodspeed, Juliet Redden will take us out of this episode singing the reprise of A Different Kind of Girl. Make sure to join me next time as Matt, Maddie, and myself will be talking more about Why I'll Never Make It. They say your dreams are too bizarre Don't wish too big, don't reach too far You're an orphan and a girl Remember, that is all you are They say you do not fit the mold That you're belligerent and bold Worst of all You won't do as you are told Well, let them talk I will not hear it The future different kind of Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.